Bienvenidos a Crónicas de la Raza. Welcome to La Raza Chronicles. Don't miss tonight's program where we bring you an interview with the author of Eat Less Water. We also bring you an interview with Lenny Olivera Rojas, who is a Bolivian woman doing crucial work on the ground to address land sovereignty in Bolivia. And we also bring you Poesia. All this and much more. Stay tuned. The following poem was written and read by prize-winning poet Andrina Zawinski in honor of Latin American's great poet Pablo Neruda, who died in 1973 under suspicious circumstances. The final conclusion of an internal forensic team about his details of his death will be announced next year. A poem called Dancing with Neruda's Bones, and it was inspired by the news reports that Neruda's body was to be exhumed to see his true cause of death. This poem is a, a surrealistic narrative, and it's also part cento. By that, I mean that in each stanza, there is a line from one of Neruda's poems. Neruda, only known to me in the poet's words, I love you as certain dark things are to be loved in secret between the shadow and the soul. Neruda's bones have been exhumed for examination. I did not want his decomposed body uprooted from its plot, transmogrified into murder mystery. Poet of eternal present, I cradle his imagined bones and pull them to me, his tango body's phalanges jangling as I cross in gyro, tibia, and fibia. Pinned by the sun between solstice and equinox, drowsy and tangled together, clanking across tiles of a kitchen floor. Let Neruda be, I plea, still dancing, his bones tethered to my body, tripping and swaying in tango rhythm, talking head on the radio, droning on in conspiracy theories of the Pinochet regime, poisoning Neruda, life split in poetry and politics, as the night wind whirls in the sky and sings. Forecast of ill fortune to lift bones from the grave, much like this wave of melancholia. In inevitable surrender I concede, what does it matter to have dug them up as his love lyrics resonate in his monotone moan, Gardel crooning behind our bumpy boleo, el dia que me quieres. Neruda's unearthed skeleton clings to my arms, scent of honeysuckle climbing limbs like vines, as I sweep and dip inside his metaphoric sigh of sea and our final sultada, voice of the rain crying, no carnations, for me only a wound that love has opened. Neruda, now so mystical and magical, cloaks his bones in flesh and play, conjures a dusty fiddle, leaps and lands on the walkway below, the violin with its ragged companion, learning how to befriend lost souls and sing songs to wandering strangers. You just heard poet Andrina Zawinski reading her original poem.
viento de la vida, dime que es normal. Viento de la vida, ¿dónde puedo acobijar mis miedos? Viento de la vida, ¿cuánto hay que esperar? Viento de la vida, ¿cómo desentumecer mis dedos? Estos dos brazos que tengo yo para pelear Aunque no quiero
sweltering days following my father's birth, he just lay there. He did not cry. He refused milk. On the fourth day, my grandmother sent her daughter to borrow a small table from the neighbor's chicken coop. They would need something to put his tiny body on for the family viewing. My grandmother knew the signs of a dying baby. She'd given birth to 11 children. Only seven survived. My father's sister came back with a table, but she refused to give up on her newborn brother. There had to be a doctor who would examine a baby for free. She ran through the heat of the Mexican summer to the town center and began knocking on doors. Someone knew a doctor, but he was busy with other patients. When he listened to her, this little girl desperate about her baby brother, the physician agreed to make a house call the next day. That night, a strong wind blew through the open window of the bedroom where my father lay. The gust startled my grandfather awake. He threw himself over my father's listless body to shield him against what my grandfather always described as an otherworldly chill. A cold hand pressed down on his back. He believed it was the hand of la muerte, death. The cold wind retreated as suddenly as it arrived. My father was still alive just barely. The doctor arrived the next morning. After a quick examination, he knew what was wrong. He prescribed gotitas de agua, drops of water on the baby's lips. Within days, my father's condition slowly improved. He suffered from dehydration. His sister, my tía Antonia, returned the table to the neighbors back to the chicken coop where it belonged. When I told this story to friends at school, I always made sure to emphasize the part about death paying a visit only to leave empty-handed. Did you know one drop of water holds all the fresh water in the world? A retired park ranger asked me at my booth where I sold water conservation products during the Earth Day event. How so? If we poured all the water on our planet, both salt water and fresh water in a gallon bucket, the proportion of water available to shower, water our lawns, drink, and grow food is one single drop. We live on a water planet. The earth is two-thirds water, and 97.5% of that is salt water. Of the 2.5% fresh water, 69.5% of that is frozen. Another 30.1% hides in deep aquifers. The remaining point percent, a drop in a bucket, sustains all the life on this planet. Now when I tell my father's story to my own children, I emphasize the power of a single drop of water. That's the voice of Florencia Ramirez. She's the author of Eat Less Water, and that is the prologue of her book. Florencia Ramirez, we just heard the prologue of your book. It's really powerful. It's a very personal story. But you went above and beyond when it came to this research. Um, you spent a lot of time investigating and interviewing and researching. Tell us a little bit about why this specific topic of water conservation has been so important to you. So, you know, I had been listening to my father tell that, retell that story for many years. But you know, you, when you hear a story in your background and you're not quite sure when it becomes important for you, like when you connect the dots. In fact, so what happened was I had just given birth to my youngest daughter, Estrella, and it was during the last drought. And I'm looking at the paper and I come across um, this one-page ad by the Metropolitan Water District that gave all of these tips on to, to save water. And one of them was to reduce your shower time. And I, at that point, I was composting. I was, you know, reusing my water bottle. I was recycling. But water was something that I didn't think about very much. You know, I, I considered myself to be an environmentalist, but water was just something that you just expect. You turn on the faucet and there it is. And so it was something that I took for granted. So I was thinking about that as I go into the shower and during that shower is when I caught that strong, this strong, like, message, you know, shower timers. You need to look at shower timers. And the idea just wouldn't go away. And I had never seen shower timers. I had never talked about shower timers before. So about a week later, I start to do some investigations and research at night because I was up at night with a newborn baby. 
and I come across this woman who was selling shower timers in Australia and then just dove into that and began to import shower timers. And, you know, so I sold 80,000 of them before I realized that I was trying to save water in the wrong room of the house because that's when I came across research that led me to the farms because 70% of all water use is to grow food. So my question for myself was, or if I want to be effective at saving water, then I need to look at what's happening at the farm level. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza, and Julieta Cosnid. And on today's program, we focus on water. Water is life. Water is the site of struggle, struggles around the world around access to water. It's key for health. It's key for growth. And we know that it's actually something that is in high demand. And water conservation is a key part of the environmental justice movement. I have in the studio with us Florencia Ramirez. She's a water conservation activist and writer, and she's recently published a book called Eat Less Water. Florencia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Florencia, so this is a really urgent topic, and it's something that it seems like since the beginning of time, water has been something that all societies have been concerned around. Can you tell us a little bit about why now? So the water experts predict that by 2030, half the world population will not have enough water. And here in the United States, we're not immune from this fact. And I come from Ventura County, and there are certainly times that... In this drought, we haven't had enough water. Even when you have a tremendous amount of water, like what we saw during the hurricanes, you still don't have clean water. So water scarcity, which is what I talk about in this book, is caused by two things. One is not having enough water, which is what we experience here in the Southwest, or having enough water, but it's polluted and you can't drink it. So those are the two causes of water scarcity. So my question um, seven years ago when I began this project was, could I as an eater make an impact on water systems? And this is why I thought about the farms and our food. When I came across some research in another book that talked about uh, this whole concept of water footprint, so which is it's looking at any product or service that takes water. I mean, everything that we do, everything, everything that is in the studio takes water, everything I'm wearing requires water, and certainly everything that we eat requires water. So I was looking at different research and came across the statistic that 70% of all fresh water on this planet is used to grow food. And yet when we hear what's talked about during drought times, as we are just coming out of a drought here in California, and you know in Southern California, we certainly are not out of a drought, the things that are talked about are taking shorter showers, swapping out your grass, turning off the faucet, and, and those things, which are absolutely important things to do. But each of us uses anywhere between 50 to 100 gallons of water in the United States in our homes. That's a lot of water, especially when you look at, say, South Africa, that, that's using five gallons of water a day is their average. But when you look at how much we eat... You and me, we eat anywhere between 500 to 1,300 gallons of virtual water a day. So when I was doing this work, when I began, I was selling shower timers. I had began thinking about water conservations 10 years ago, and for me, my entry was in the shower and thinking about um, how can we reduce shower time. And I was doing all these calculations because, you know, I, my mind thinks in statistics. I did the number crunching and figured out that if each of us were to reduce our shower time by four minutes in a year, you would save on average 2,500 gallons of water in that year just in the shower. And that sounds like a lot, but think about how much we eat in a day. So I realized I was trying to save water in the wrong room of the house. Really, if we're going to have a deeper conversation about saving water on this planet, it has to begin at the farms, and it has to begin in our kitchens. And so that's where I began to think about setting out to understand what is that connection between food and water. I started to visit two farms and, um, and talk to farmers to understand 
the connection. So Florencia, you've talked about the scale, just the hundreds and hundreds of gallons, thousands of gallons that people are consuming, and your trip to the farm, which is probably not where people would expect for you to go to address this issue. Tell us about the farmers you talked to and some of their stories and how this became such a big part of your story and your book. So one of the first farms that I set out to visit was, first I started in California. I went to a small-scale chicken farm in Ojai called Funny Farms, the model that they were doing was rotating these chickens about 50 under under this like wooden crate and they would move the chickens on a daily basis around this orchard and the way that they handled the chickens is that you would have to order them in advance and that's how they would know how many chickens to slaughter on a given saturday Well, in this scenario, there is no food waste. And here in the United States, we waste about 50% of our food, anywhere between 30 to 50% of our food is thrown away. And all of that, when we're throwing away this food, we're throwing away water, we're throwing away natural resources. So that was an interesting model to begin to look at what these small-scale farmers are doing to save water and also to build their soil health and to decrease pollution because animals are the biggest polluter of water. They're runoff into water systems. And here I see this orchard that has these chickens and there, there was no runoff because everything was being absorbed into the land and there was this partnership between the, the animal and and the soil. And that's something I saw repeated over and over again. So the next farm I went to was um, in Paso Robles, California. It's called With the Grain Farm. John DeRossier is the farmer. And he is what's called a dry farmer and, and a biodynamic farmer. Those were two concepts that were completely new to me when I rolled onto his farm seven years ago. And what what that means is that he, even though all the vineyards around his property and all of the almond trees that are growing around him, and even though they are using irrigation and drilling deeper and deeper into the groundwater, his farm is using no irrigation. I couldn't understand how that was possible because I, I come from Oxnard, California. I see the sprinkler systems going off on a daily basis, both rain or shine, really. I mean, that's, that's the agriculture that I know. So to, to come to this farm and see that there's this other way of farming, well, it uses a lot less water than what I'm, that, what I'm accustomed to and I think what most people are accustomed to. So my question to him was, how is that possible? How can you use just natural rain when everybody around you is using the groundwater. And, you know, he so he takes me down the hillside and says, your answer is in the in this crop cover. And he yanks out some grass and I see the dangling roots. And within those root systems live all of these more microorganisms. And so he opened me up to this, just the vibrancy of what's happening beneath us in the soil on in farms that are treating their soil, are building their soil health. So microorganisms really is a difference between a farm that's able to use a lot less water and to keep the water in the ground versus a farm that has to feed their plants fertilizers and has to give them a lot more water because they're of the absence of the microorganisms in the soil. And the reason for that is one farm, like the farm that I went to in in Paso Robles and all the farms that I visited, versus many of the farms that are near my home, the big difference between the two, one treats them with chemicals and the other doesn't. So all the farms that I visited and I, I write about in the book are all organic. There's no chemicals being sprayed on their plants. And that is the the big key that I found. So by us as the eater supporting organic agriculture, what we're doing is supporting agriculture that uses a lot less water. 
I'm speaking to Florencia Ramirez. She's the author of the new book she just published, Eat Less Water. And we're talking about some of her findings since she went and spoke to so many farmers. You have a lot of stories of solutions, not just the problem. You definitely show the magnitude of the problem, but you focus also on alternatives. So there may be people listening that are thinking organic produce is sometimes accessible, sometimes not. It's hard to find organic meats. What do you say to the folks that are listening thinking, how can this have a wider impact and how can we really make a difference since it's such an urgent issue? So each of us can do more than what we're doing now. So for example, if you're right now purchasing eggs that are not organic, maybe consider next week you'll purchase the organic eggs and then the following week you'll purchase the conventional. So you know, we each have different budgets that we're operating from. And that's okay. You know, I talk about in the book this whole this whole concept of better and best. Uh, better food is organic food. It's better for water. This is what I've learned because you're not using chemicals on the land. You're not using uh, petroleum-based fertilizers. There is less runoff as a result of that into your creeks and rivers. You're, so, and you're drawing less water from the ground because your land is not as thirsty as land that's treated with chemicals. So that's a better, that's a better model. And then you have best, and best is the food that I find at the farmer's market. Best is buying from that small-scale farmer who is rotating their animals, for example. So, so it's not just that the eggs are coming from an organic farm where the feed is organic, but you know the small scale is coming from pastures where these animals are being rotated on the land. And what I found in my research that that is the best way to raise animals when you're looking at building soil and saving water. So that is when I'm looking at my own grocery list and I think about what are the things that I need, it could be that not everything can be better. It just can't, you know, but I can think about what are the best things I can do from where I am now. And maybe, you know, next month I can integrate a few more things. And maybe the following month I can integrate a few more things. Or maybe it's just that all I'm going to do is change my animal products, which has the biggest impact on the environment, both positive and negative. So I'm going to seek that meat producer and I'm going to seek that egg producer and I'm going to make sure that my milk is coming from an organic farm. And maybe that's where I stop. And that would be huge if many of us were doing that because there is power in the collective. That's the voice of Florencia Ramirez. She's speaking to us about her latest book, Eat Less Water. And she's talking to us a little bit about what people can do in their own lives to really think about how the food they purchase has such a direct impact on the water consumed in this state and in this country. You've shared some of the stories of meeting farmers and hearing about some of the other things they're doing. What other things surprised you that people are just being very innovative and creative in terms of their response to this very urgent issue because it is something that farmers are dealing with directly day in, day out. Um, what What are some other stories or what's another thing you'd like to share that surprised you while you're researching this book? I, what surprised me is that most of our agriculture in the world is utilizing rain, natural rain. In the book, I talk about uh, green water and blue water. So green water is a designation for water. That is, it's natural rain. It's not diverting any of the water in the water system. And so rain-fed agriculture is all green water, all dry farmers, for example, the, the the farmer that I mentioned earlier, John DeRossier. So he's a dry farmer, so he is utilizing green water. What surprised me is that 90% of all agriculture utilizes green water. 10% of agriculture utilizes blue water. So that's water that's coming from the ground. That's water that's coming from reservoirs and from rivers. And especially it's coming from the ground here in California. And the problem with that is that we're using it as a renewable resource 
when it's not. It, it's, and it's, that's, how, that's duplicated all over the, the country, is that we're drawing water from the ground at much faster rates than it's being replenished. So that surprised me as well. But so the 10%, going back to the 10% of water that is, is used in our irrigation systems, that water there is utilizing 70% of all fresh water. So what, what we need to be concerned about is as our climate is changing, as the temperatures are changing, and farms that once were only utilizing rain or the green water are now beginning to utilize more blue water or the groundwater. And the question is, do we have enough? Do we have enough water in the ground? Do we have enough water in our reservoirs to grow the blue water usage on our farms? And when I was looking at different statistics, the answer is no, we don't have enough water. So, Florencia, you have spent so much time thinking and really focusing on the many ways, the many different points where people can reduce water consumption. So your house must be a house that, um, as you said, it's better and best. It's not. But I'm sure that you've created a, a space where you're doing everything possible to mi- limit so your water usage. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what your house is like so we can learn from you? So you walk into my kitchen, it doesn't, it's not going to look that different. What, but what you will find is a big chalkboard wall. And on the wall, we have our uh, menu for the week. And I think planning your meals is really important so you don't waste a lot of food. Because a lot of us, you know, I know how that is. You, you buy a lot of groceries, you stuff it inside of your, your refrigerator, and then you, you kind of forget about what you bought them for. So that's, that's for us, that really works out in our families to plan. And it also kind of frees me to cook more because there's, you know how we get, you, you worked all day, you come home and you're like, what am I going to make? And I just look up and I say, oh, okay, today is quiche or uh, today we're making the chicken and then we're going to use that chicken. And I, what I'll do is I'll, I'll look to see what the menu is and see how I can u- utilize some ingredients from one night to the next. So in the, in the book, for example, I have different recipes because that's the action step. It's not, I want you to learn about how you can eat less water, but then now what? What do you do with that information? And, and so it, the, the, the next big piece is to take what you learn and to go out and support these farmers and buy organic food to support those small-scale farmers, to bring those ingredients into your kitchen and to start utilizing that food and, and just... So it's not that you're going to find any ingredients in my home that are different. You're going to find bottles of wine in my home. You're going to find beer at my home, a flower. But if you look more carefully, you'll see that the wine is organic or biodynamic most of the time. You know, sometimes it's, again, better, best, and sometimes it's the worst. You know, so, and that's okay. It's just, you know, thinking about it more often than what you think about it now. The milks you're going to find are organic, generally from like Organic Valley, which is one of the farms that I featured inside of in the book. So that's a big piece. You're also going to find a compost container on the counter because that's causing 20% of our methane emissions is coming from food that's rotting in, in landfills. So that's another thing, the, the other component to bolstering soil health and reducing waste and using less water in our kitchen. And the other thing you're going to find is my kids cooking in the kitchen. So we have a schedule as well for kids. I have three children and they will sign up for meals and they'll decide on Sunday what what day of the week they want to cook or if they want to cook that week and come up with what the what they want to make and then give me a list of the ingredients. So and I think that that is huge as well like to let we got to bring this next generation back into the kitchen with us and show them how to cook from scratch because when you're cooking from scratch you then we have control over the source of all those ingredients. 
And when you don't, when you can't cook from scratch and you can't cook, you know, then support those restaurants that are farm to table that are cooking from scratch on your behalf, you know, and who are really looking at what are their sources and supporting small scale farms and bringing that into their kitchens because they have a tremendous power really in, in, in supporting uh, sustainable agriculture because they're feeding many more people than I am in my kitchen. So, but they can only exist again if we're supporting them. So the consumer which is, you know, the, this, is, this, whole, this whole book is empowering the consumer to realize that we hold the solution for water shortages. We do. And one of the statistics that I came across was that the, the biggest influencer of decisions at the corporate level are not the policymakers, they're not the board members, they're not the employees, they are the consumers. But we have to merge our influence. And that comes with us, with our purchasing power, with us asking questions, asking about whether things are organic, asking whether um, what kind of irrigation system they're using, asking for dry farmed, asking for biodynamic, asking for mob grazed or holistic managed, which are other terms I talk about in the book, which, you know, it essentially is rotating animals on on paddocks, on pastures. So all of those things are, are critical so that we can change the trajectory. We can change the story so that when 2030 comes, half the world population is not experiencing water shortages, but rather we have enough, that there is enough for all of us. I'm speaking to Florencia Ramirez about her book, Eat Less Water. So Florencia, you've mentioned that this book is more than just uh, extensive research, which you conducted over several years, it's also a very user-friendly guide and resource book. So talk to us a little bit about some of the other things people can find along with the research and the recipes. What are other things they can find inside this book? Well, you're going to find water footprints. So every time you start a chapter, you'll see a water footprint. So for example, eggs, one egg equals 23 gallons of water, and one dozen eggs equals 276 gallons of water. And if you look at the tequila, one liter bottle of tequila equals 65 gallons of water. So I think that that, for me, that's a good starting point, is to understand what is the water footprint of food. And especially when I'm looking at just conventionally raised food, that really becomes important. So, for example, if I'm going to a restaurant and I know that everything in there is is conventional, so it's, there's nothing organic, everything is factory farmed, then I'm going to look at the plant-based options because the water footprint is less or it's, it's lower. But if I am at the farmer's market and I'm doing shopping, then it becomes less important for me what the water footprint is if I know that the that particular food is grown in a way that is water sustainable. So Florencia Ramirez, tell us about how people can get a hold of this book. It's a great opportunity for them to share with their families or with their loved ones. How can people actually get their hands on a copy? Uh, in the Bay Area, I know it's at City Lights Books. Uh, it's at Barnes & Noble. You can find it online at Barnes & Noble, also on Amazon. A lot of uh, independent bookstores, you'll find it there. And you can also um, find me, I blog at, at my, on my website, www.eatlesswater.com. This is La Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza, and I've been speaking to Florencia Ramirez about her book, Eat Less Water. And you can find that book at a bunch of different places and also follow her to hear more about her thinking and activism. And you can find out more about all the work she's doing to increase water conservation. Thank you so much, Florencia, for joining us in studio. Thank you.
Jenny Oliveira Rojas is a feminist activist, sociology student, and political musician in Cochabamba, Bolivia. She and a friend dropped by the KPFA studios a couple months ago to share ideas with members of the Women's Magazine Collective, and I convinced her to do a short interview. I started by asking how she got involved in feminism. I studied computer science first, but I didn't like so... Then I studied sociologist, and now I'm making my thesis. And so I'm studying and working in, in an environmental NGO, and in my job and also in, in, the, in their groups, I'm interested in women issues. But um, during s so many years, since I think 2000, I'm more interested because I I saw many injustices among the groups who who in theory say that they are l left uh, all all the types of group in the left I think have many contradictions. There's a lot of machismo inside, and women are just women just play a specific role, and we have to be silent when something terrible happened. I saw many contradictions, for example, like women uh, in the groups uh, were raped by the men who, who themselves called uh, revolutionaries. revolutionaries. Yeah. <laughs> so there's no big difference in the right and the left. Um, that's why I decided uh, in, since 2005, more or less, to to be purchased of women's group. Of course, we have some other groups with certain friends who are men, but in another terms like allies. So the women's groups that you're working with, are these grassroots organizations or NGOs or both? Well, all of them are autonomous groups, grassroots groups. So we have many critics to NGOs because most of the NGOs have different perspective. Uh, they talk about gender equality, which um, it looks like, yeah, they want to do something for women, but women are not the same. We are not the same. We're Most of the times we talk like, okay, we are women and we have to fight. Um, because uh, all the oppression is is the same, but it's not the same. I think there are big difference differences, and mm -hmm. sometimes um, they're not open to see those realities. And most of the time, they they try to show that they represent women, where and that's not true. And most of the time, they just think that the big changes could be done being in in the power in this in the mm -hmm. certain place in the government maybe, or certain institutions. But in the daily life, most of the women still having many problems and disadvantages and so on. So that's why I'm more involved in grassroots uh, groups. So. I know some of the issues that you're working on are land and you're doing your thesis on women's collective ownership of land. Talk a little about that. Yeah, I think um, since uh, women is uh, now in Bolivia and in many places around the world, I think, but in different ways, uh, uh, still being oppressed, um, there are many, uh, ev even though we can study, we can work, but there are many challenges. So, especially in Bolivia where feminicides are so high, mm, so many women are dying, uh, almost 100 in 2007, for example. So for me, one of the alternatives that could really um, confront or at, at least put a basis to do something against violence would be to to own a land. And the most important thing is that women could be secure in those lands, not being a land that is uh, with a man that the man is leading or is the ownership, the owner of the land, sorry. So that's why I personally, I, I, I lived with many 
friends, many women uh, from different parts of, of the city and the rural areas also. And it's, n it's not easy. Yeah, most of the women don't have the same access of land like men uh, in the urban areas and also in the rural areas. Although the, the constitution in Bolivia says that they would like that both could have the same access, but in practice, it's not like that. So I'm very interested in, in seeing uh, new ways to, to really have this uh, option and would be more sustainable if it's collective. So a good experience uh, that I found, uh, to, and that's why I'm making my thesis on in this issue, is it's the, an alternative of a group of women that in the um, urban areas of Cochabamba, Bolivia, um, decided to buy a land uh, to be owners, but in a collective way in, in the urban area. So um, it, it's... It's it's it was not easy and they have many challenges, but I think it's a very good way to at least have the minimum conditions that could um, uh, do something instead of just going to the police or going to to the to a psychologist, which is not easy and implies money, mom, time, and a lot of a lot of help for with your friends and uh, certain groups. So in terms of violence against women, and you mentioned femicide being a big issue that like 100 women a year or more are killed by men that they're close to. You were talking about some alternative forms of self-defense, really, or collective self-defense that some women's communities have developed. Talk about some of those. Yeah, like uh, like the one I mentioned that mm -hmm. ha they decided to buy this land in a collective way. For example, in this community, they decided to to have uh, very important principles. Like, for example, if a woman is is living violence and many times, so they have a certain committee that uh, follows those cases and talk with the women and let's see three times, four times is different any case it's every case is different so uh they've tried to find ways how they could do something considering as an a, a very important issue in the community not just like something of someone's problem in us that most of the times is like not the priority uh so in this case it's like one of important committee that uh follow those cases and in the worst case um there were men that were kicked out of the community and and by force because most of the men uh, if they they feel secure that they can steal whatever they want because they they have more um, self esteem i mean they they if they decided to to be with a woman, although the women don't like anymore or decided the opposite thing. So most of the time they're still there. But in this case, the community could uh, kick out them. And um, like like that case happened many, many times. So I think like more than, I, I just knew like four women, but I think it was very good uh, strategic way because those women could be killed. And uh, although it's not easy because uh, the men try to come back and, and try try to um, intimidate women, um, but of course it's important that a group of people is behind the, them. And the important thing is that they don't, the women don't think that they are alone, but in the practice, not just in the discourse. So are women having children very young? And what about birth control and abortion? Like, are these available? Do people know about them? Do people try to use them? Yeah, well, most of the women, yeah, got pregnant very young. And at school, it's not a priority to teach, um, to talk about all those issues. It's something that it happened and they they cannot continue studying in some in most of the cases so they start to 
um, working or staying with the babies and uh, it's you can buy from a drugstore of course some mm, pills or uh, methods contraception contraception contraceptive methods yeah yeah of, yes but it depends on who you are again because uh, if you are a young woman from countryside and you don't speak very well Spanish or you're not used to go to those places to ask some something which is not talk about in your house about that so it's 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 not it's not enough that it's accessible it has to do with money but it also has to do with of course we we live also a lot of racism with people with the countryside of your poor so you don't feel free to talk about all those issues and uh, I think it's it's not just uh, the idea of to have an access because in a certain way we have that access although the church is against all those methods methods but um, the problem is that uh, we we have a lot well the, the idea the mentality of the people of society so um, there's a lot of machismo on at school in your family everywhere so if you got pregnant, maybe your friend will tell you, oh, gosh, oh, y- if you decided to make an abortion, I, w- I won't be your friend anymore, things like that, because they have very strong ideas that, that has to do with the church since the colonization came with the Spaniards. So um, it has to do with, with more other uh, issues like that. It's not just having access. So is abortion legal? It's illegal except in certain cases like if you're raped or if, if your life is in danger. And recently it, it was a debate with a, a law that uh, could let women have an abortion but it, with certain conditions according to your economical economical situation or how many children you have, you, you got before, you have before, um, or many conditions that maybe it's difficult that for women to prove and I think before before always was like that like except if you are raped or you are in danger but it it didn't happen in practice so most of the women really if you have money then you have options to to survive an abortion because could be well done in a in a very in with a in an in a hosp in a hospital, but if if you're a poor woman, so you can die. Like that's one of the big reasons why why many other women are are dying. Wow. Some of the work you're doing, you're also doing music with women. Talk about that a little. Yeah. Well, it's really difficult to have secure and uh, spaces with women. And also thinking on women that maybe never been have been in a group, or maybe never been having a space to speak about why why the society demands a certain type of women, and and what would happen if we want to decide to do the other things. So things like that. So for me, as uh, a musician. A musical space was important to to find other ways to show uh, how we think through music, talking about violence against women. So there are many lyrics that we have mm-hmm. against uh, being raped or against the the, the aggressors um, or asking or trying to show an idea of that we have to get organized and rebuild because nobody will take will worry about it except us because we are the most affected ones and you mostly do music at demonstrations or do you also perform in clubs and stuff yeah well basically we most of the times in demonstrations and yelling many messages (laughs) Uh (laughs) yeah and also different spaces yeah more cultural spaces to we are always trying to uh, show a different message in this cultural spaces. So, because for many other people, just it's, it's nice to play music, but just for other reasons, because the cultural is good, it's it's fine. But for us, it's very important to have a 
the the that whatever we are playing have some uh, a political um, point of view. So, do most women in Bolivia sort of identify with other women, or like do they see being women as an important part of their identity? Mm, well, it depends because we have many many indigenous groups and it's variety, big variety, and there's a lot of racism, of course, because. On the in the media, we all the time are seeing white thing women, and that will be the stereotype. So indigenous women are we are smaller, we are more brown, and mm, uh, talking about that, yeah, it's 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 very violent. Yeah, you have mm -hmm. to be different. So we are not the same. There are big differences, of course. Although you are uh, a woman from a community. But if you go to the to the urban areas, then you have the opportunity to study. So yeah, then then you have other conditions. So yeah, there are big differences among the class, ethnic, ethnicity. Is education free for everybody? No, well, we have public schools. Um, yeah, you can have access to that, but also university. But it depends on who you are again, <laughs> because. It, it although we have the, this option uh, if you if you come from countryside and if you have to work at the same time you have many other obstacles to study there so the ones who have more conditions and talking about the space in their home uh, the families i think then those type of people will finish more uh, uh, easily or mm -hmm. could do masters or whatever. So, yeah, many people could go to the university, but at the same time, no, because it depends on on the conditions that you have. Lenny Oliveira Rojas is a grassroots feminist activist and sociology student in Cochabamba, Bolivia, and she's part of a women's music collective. Connect with her at LennyOliveiraRojas.com. Lenny is spelled L-E-N-Y. Thanks to Corinne Smith for her help with that interview. Muchas gracias por estar con nosotros. You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. If you'd like to share this program with a friend or listen to it again, you can find us on soundcloud.com slash La Raza Chronicles. If you'd like to find out more about what's happening in your community y también estar al tanto, be up on upcoming events, you can always like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash La Raza Chronicles. Muchísimas gracias y buenas noches.